It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. So I want to welcome my guest, Gus Garcia-Roberts, whose new book is called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the Reign of a Dirty Cop. It tells the story of Suffolk Police Department Chief James Burke, who reminds me a little bit of Harvey Keitel in the film Bad Lieutenant. He rises from lowly patrolman and rises to the rank of top chief of the department, all the while consorting with prostitutes, doing cocaine, driving drunk as a sailor, manipulating politicians and threatening and extorting and spying on and roughing up and conspiring pretty much anyone who gets in his way. So, Gus, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. How does a guy like Burke get to the top? So, you know, sort of answering that question was what made me want to explore this book, you know, because he's so sort of wildly unqualified to be chief of department of one of the largest departments in the country. And so the way that he got his start was he was actually sort of like a wayward teenager in Smithtown, New York. And he acted as a homicide witness in this notorious murder that occurred in 1979. And the prosecutor in that case, Tom Spoda, sort of took him under his wing and guided Burke into a career as a police officer, for which, at that point, Burke was pretty wildly underqualified. And so studying the transcripts of the case in which, you know, young Jimmy Burke was a witness... I found that his testimony over years was sort of wildly inconsistent and seemed tailored to saying exactly what the prosecution needed, depending on which of his four buddies who he testified against were on trial at that point. And his testimony sort of contradicted himself, contradicted the facts of the case. And if you sort of took like an unsparing eye at it, You know, it appeared that he was essentially just saying what Spoda or whatever prosecutor was on the trial at that time needed. And sort of as a direct result or a direct reward, the Suffolk County DA's office pulled strings in order to help him become a cop, despite a really already checkered past, even as a kind of juvenile delinquent growing up in in Smithtown. And so from there, you know, he was able to rise up the ranks of the Suffolk County PD. And throughout, he was always protected by Tom Spoda, who was kind of his rabbi. And, you know, at the same time, Burke kind of rewarded Spoda with really powerful connections to the police in Suffolk County that helped both men, you know, reach the heights of that county and really become the most powerful people in the county. And Suffolk County isn't some podunk place. It's one of two counties on Long Island in suburban New York. It has about 1.5 million residents. A lot of people might know it as the home of the Hamptons, but there's a lot else going on there. It's also one of the biggest police departments, law enforcement agencies in the country. And it's also relatively new. It was only formed about 60 years ago. 
And yet it seems to have outsized political influence, according to your book. Why do you think that is? It does, particularly for those affiliated with the police. So, you know, in a place like New York City, not all NYPD cops reside in New York City. But in Suffolk County, all of the massive Suffolk County Police Department, for the most part, resides in Suffolk County. Not only that, but roughly a quarter of NYPD resides in Long Island. And so what you have is this really massive political voting block that's controlled by police. And so as a result of that, you have public officials that are beholden to what police unions say. And so there's a massive criminal conspiracy that unfolds in this book. And, you know, union police union officials play a major role in it. And instead of sort of representing the interests of their constituents, which, you know, is in, for example, in the Detectives Association of Suffolk County would be detectives for the Suffolk County PD. Burke, as he sort of rose up the ranks and ultimately became chief of department, was very good at sort of making those union interests work directly for him. Um, He amassed a lot of power. By the way, this happened quite recently. You know, he started, as you say, Spoda took him under his wing in the late 70s in this notorious murder case, and they stayed close. And then as he rises through the ranks, he's good at sort of noticing weaknesses and whether they're affairs or character weaknesses in other people, and then using that against them, either cultivating that and making them part of his inner group, and they become very powerful, this inner group, or using it to somehow destroy them, to expose things about them. But yet, what is it that undoes him? It's a strung-out heroin addict kid who steals a duffel bag unwittingly, didn't even know whose bag he was stealing, this kid steals it from Burke's car. That's his undoing. How did that happen? And how did that thread get pulled to undo this whole operation that he had? Yeah. So I've, I found that amazing. You know, as you were saying, people, you know, Burke became more powerful than the Suffolk County executive. It took this kid who was Christopher Loeb. He was in his mid-20s at the time. He had for about a decade had a heroin addiction. You know, his what he basically did to support his addiction was he would break into vehicles, not even break into them. He would jiggle the doors, and if the door was unlocked, he would go in and take whatever he could. Often it was just the change from the dashboard. And this is a big Long Island thing in Nassau County, too. You know, addicts looking for stuff in cars to sell to buy drugs. Right. And so in this case, Jimmy Burke's unmarked black GMC Yukon, which was police issued in the back, Loeb found a duffel bag. And when he takes it home, he realize, he looks through it and he sees, first of all, signs that it belongs to the chief of department, including police union cards and a gun belt. And second of all, sex toys and pornography. And, you know, it was Loeb's poor luck that he had a probation check the morning after he stole Burke's bag. So just complete coincidence, there were probation officers at his home checking yeah. up on him right before or right after he had stolen the right. bag. Right. So, so the morning after he steals Crazy Burke's bag. Yeah, right. It's like you can't make that up. Yeah, yeah. And so they find stuff belonging to the chief. And what really starts to make the case go weird from the beginning was that Burke had his sort of chosen detectives. He called them his palace guards, but they were members of the criminal intelligence unit, basically an elite unit in Suffolk County. 
take over the case. And Burke himself shows up at Loeb's house, and he grabs his duffel bag and the items inside, and they're never sort of properly cataloged. And then uh, Burke goes to the precinct and where Christopher Loeb is being held, and his palace guards are at that point already slapping around Chris Loeb. And then Burke joins in and he beats Loeb pretty viciously and you know the stated intent was trying to get a confession out of Chris Loeb there was lots of witnesses both at Loeb's house and at the precinct in the form of police of all stripes and essentially what begins is a years-long cover-up where the feds catch wind of the beating and they try to interview witnesses but the Many police witnesses all sort of close ranks, and they lie to federal agents, which is a crime, and they lie on the stand in Loeb's case. They lie in a grand jury, and the reason why they lie, they you know, some of them later said, was because they knew that if they told the truth, it would be you know their career would suffer or they'd be worse. And there's this concerted effort that is led by Burke and Spoda in which they involve the police union officials. And there's basically auditions held in which if cops stray from the story, then they are telegraphed quite clearly, this is the story that you need to stick to. And they do. And initially, on the first go around, the feds can't pierce that. And the case is, is, is ultimately shelved. And Burke is being told that he's cleared on the case. So as I'm reading this, I know that your research was painstaking, reading transcripts, going over the press, the press, getting interviews with people. Were you ever concerned for your own safety while you were reporting? Because you talk about in the book how people getting tracking devices put on their cars, nails put in another reporter's tires, things about their background being exposed for everyone to know, embarrassing things. Did you ever worry about any backlash personally? To some extent, you know, as it happens, I worked at Newsday for five years, which is sort of how I first got on the scent of this And book. Just, just a quick aside, it's in- interesting how you take your former employer to task, yeah. almost as an enabler of this culture. Yeah, yeah, and I'd love to get into yeah. that. So essentially, when I started writing the book, I happened to move to Los Angeles for another job. And I think that actually, you know, sort of helped me sleep better at night. That you're because, not on Long Island. <laughs> right, because I think if I was out on Long Island, I would be afraid of, of sort of being pulled over by... By somebody who might know Jimmy and and have a trumped up case put on me or something. You know, just to quickly sort of respond to what you said about Newsday, the reason why I did this book is because I thought that James Burke was a really interesting way of exploring how do unqualified, bad, brutal cops rise up the ranks? What are all the different levers of power that go into that? And, you know, I sort of realized quickly what during the reporting that if I was going to explore, you know, the public officials in their pocket and the union officials and all these other levers that go into it, the political influence of cops, I also needed to sort of, you know, be transparent about what I found concerning my own tribe, which was the media. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the book, I did include those sort of factors in Burke's rise that I think, you know, in which Newsday or other members of the media, you know, could be arguably complicit. And and so, for example, when Burke was really drunk with power and and Tom Spoda were too, and they wiretapped a top MS-13 detective in the department 
to try to catch him leaking documents to a Newsday reporter, I found that a top editor at Newsday was simultaneously leaking information about her reporting back to Spoda. Oh, this is, is this Tanya Lopez's reporting? Yeah. 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 Which, you know, is clearly like sort of a cardinal sin and knowing how dangerous these guys were, you know, it's pretty egregious. Well, it's interesting you talk about MS-13 because you indicate in the book, uh, MS-13, for those who don't know, is a vicious street gang with no discernible hierarchy. And these great cops in Suffolk County were doing these investigations, developing confidential informants, getting into MS-13, speaking Spanish, you know, getting into the whole culture so that they could begin to take it down. But yet Burke and his cronies killed those investigations. They had those detectives demoted or put into different positions where they couldn't do this anymore, thereby empowering MS-13. Yeah. It was, which a- I fa- was it all about control for them? I think so, is control and as sort of cynical as it is, credit, which is, Mm. you know, I think Burke really didn't want, didn't like the idea that the feds were getting credit for closing these MS-13 cases. And, you know, he would complain that the detectives that were being paid $200,000 by his department were becoming federalized. And Mm -hmm. I think he also had a fear that those detectives would get too close to the feds and become spies for the feds against him. He sort of lived in this very paranoiac world, and it became true in a way. Uh, Once he took those detectives off those task forces for those very cynical reasons, those detectives became the ones that then told the feds, did you know that he beat somebody in the fourth precinct? I'm sorry, in the first precinct. So those detectives became the federal sources. So actually he made his own kind of enemies in that way, and and it really backfired. But that was kind of his modus operandi, which was always escalating um, his beefs. Yeah. Yeah. So Long Island has been sort of notorious in some ways for really sensational crimes. We had the Long Island Lolita, Amy Fisher, Joel Rifkin, the serial killer. Everyone knows about the Amityville horror. And there's a story about John Pius, a 13-year-old in the late 70s who was found murdered, buried, half-buried with rocks down his throat. And there was a young prosecutor named Tom Spoda who had this. Now, we talked before earlier about how Spoda had taken Burke under his wing. Uh, and cultivated him because James Burke as a young kid was a bit of a juvenile delinquent but also had a little Eddie Haskell in him could be very charming he he had certain teachers who just adored him and he was great on the witness stand he was very believable and that got me thinking that Burke was as much a product of this culture that's already there as Spoda kind of exemplifies as he was a perpetrator of it how do yep. you see that? I love that you see that because that's exactly how I see it. You know, and I think there's a tendency now to sort of in official channels in Suffolk County to sort of blame everything on Burke now that he's gone. But I think the truth is he just learned the ropes of a system that was corrupt dating back to the 70s and earlier. And so, you know, the Pius case was a really clear example of how the homicide squad in Suffolk County was known for um, relying exclusively on confessions. And so in the Pius case, they got a 15-year-old alone, lied to his parents about where he was, didn't allow him access to a lawyer, and basically didn't let him out of their grips until he confessed. And that was a sort of somewhat more gentle way than they usually went about doing it, which was, um, you know, there was many credible allegations that they were beating 
uh, confessions out of suspects. And so what you kind of have is this is this corrupt system that's guided by uh, highly powerful members of the department who sort of control the political structure of Suffolk County. And they're essentially allowed to do whatever they want in the name of law enforcement. And often that's sort of shoddy investigation and, you know, locking people up that don't that 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 didn't do anything wrong and so i think that burke sort of just learned the ropes of this and then you know i, th- I thought it was sort of poetic what brought him down was really doing what those homicide bulls did which was try to get a confession out of somebody who didn't want to confess and using your fist to do so you also, in the book, there's so much in here, you really go through the decades of this pious case and these four yeah. teenagers who were accused and, you know, what these confessions and these court cases and these appeals. And, and I'm not still sure who actually killed this child. Yeah. Do you have a theory who the, mur- um, who the real murderer slash murderers are? So in the book, I detail evidence against others in town who, you know, for whatever reason, the homicide detectives just basically yeah. ignored them. Right. So, you know, one of them is John Pius's father, who I think, you know, a competent detective would have examined, for example, his story, which shifted several times in the first 24 hours. Um, but, you know, these detectives in the Pius case acknowledged that before the interview with him was even done, before an autopsy was even finished, they had decided sort of based on a hunch that the father had nothing to do with it. There was other sort of characters like that that the detectives largely ignored, and I think that's because they had their confession. Um, And, you know, if they were to focus on a credible suspect at that point, they would be making themselves out to look like liars because they had already gotten a confession from this 15-year-old kid. Mm. So, you know, I'm the former county executive in Nassau in the neighboring county of Suffolk, and we have had our own corruption stories in Nassau. My predecessor, for instance, was convicted of corruption charges, as was his chief deputy. But as I was reading this book, it actually made Nassau County look like Mayberry in comparison, how deep this went. Yep. I hear what you're saying about the police unions and their outsized influence, but it all it feels like they're even more influential in Suffolk County than they are in Nassau, and they're pretty powerful. Powerful in Nassau County as well. Yeah. You know, their endorsements matter. The money for campaigns matters. But it just seems like it's so much deeper. And, and you know, as I said before, for such a young department, it's just, is it just the culture of the place? And do you think that it's starting to change? Do you get a sense that it's starting to become better? I do agree. I think Suffolk County, you know, has much is on a more extreme scale than Nassau County and maybe a more extreme scale than most jurisdictions in the United States. You know, I think part of the reason is simple geography. It's pretty far removed from the city. You don't get to Suffolk County accidentally. You kind of have to you know, drive out there. It's not on the way to anywhere else. No, it's not. And so because of that, I think there's very little oversight from the state, from federal authorities, and also from the media. You know, there's a the only outlet that really covers Suffolk County in, in detail is, is Newsday. So you know what really surprises me on that? You you touch on this in the book as well, are the, is the Gilgo murders. Yeah. Sex workers, how many are there? Eleven. Eleven remains have been found in this remote beach community, very sparsely populated and they date back about 12 years right so there's sort of a parlor game that people play on Long Island as gruesome and horrible as these are is who did it 
and speculation goes all over the place. You do not, according to your book, believe that Burke had anything to do with these murders. Right. And what I basically say is, even though he is the suspect who sort of first comes to mind because of his documented history of sex workers, clear propensity for violence, and, you know, the power to cover it up at that time, I just don't see any available evidence that is clear, you know, that he had anything to do with it. That's not saying that I'm saying 100% he did not. I got that, but, yeah. Um, and it's also it's like that in Suffolk, the culture, it maybe is changing now. But according to your book, they were not interested in forensics. They were not yeah. interested in the nerdy police sciences. They went with the macho gut instinct. This is what I think, and I'm going to make you confess. Right. Whereas, you know, finding exhumed remains and then studying them and doing carbon dating and all the forensic stuff, they're not into that. Right. So, you know, and one of the reasons why people suspect Burke is because – he and Spoda denied the FBI sending out a, an analysis unit of... And a of, profiler. Right, of the people that profile serial killers, which is commonly done in every unsolved serial killing. Yeah. And, you know, that's a pretty suspicious move. But I also think it fits in with Burke's obsession with credit um, and that he did not want some highfalutin federal investigators coming in there and helping to solve, you know, one of the biggest cases on his turf. And... I think that this was the perfect foil for Suffolk County's poor history of investigating homicides in that this was a case that you needed top-level professional forensic investigators to solve, and that's just not how they've operated. What really surprises me about Gilgo is I personally find it fascinating. You know, I've listened to the podcasts, reading the books. I just find it such an interesting story. Why it doesn't get more attention, why people aren't, you know, whether it's the police, the politicians, the media, why they aren't all over it. I mean, this is a big deal. 11 yeah. people dead. Yeah. Well, you know, soon after the bodies were found and the PD sort of learned that it had a serial killing or, or multiple on, on its hands, the chief of detectives who was overseeing the case sort of tried to placate a town hall meeting or a county hall meeting by saying, you know, one consolation is he's drawing from a pool, which is of sex workers. And, you mm -hmm. know, as I noted in the book, I doubt that that would have been stated as a consolation if it was like, for example, soccer moms. And so I think that is that apathy because of who the victims were really tainted the case. Oh. Um, and I think that's what caused them to sort of put so little investigative resources into it. And, you know, what like you has, don't have to worry about your family. That's not who's going to be a victim here. Right. And, the, you know, mm -hmm. I think that these aren't considered voters. You know, these aren't considered people that matter. They're not mm. considered taxpayers. And I think really all that made this case so big on the map now and made one that now like the PD and the DA's office and elected officials out there do have to answer to and are probably tired of answering about this case is the fact that the public sort of didn't accept that yeah. and the and there was a major outcry that you know it's not okay to just be apathetic about this case because it's sex workers yeah yeah did you try to interview james burke I did. I did several times through an intermediary and at one point through his attorney. And I sent him a sort of long, detailed list of, of what would be in the book so that he could respond. And I never received any response. So my understanding is he's still there in the Smithtown area and he's uh, receiving a 
a police pension of around $145,000 a year. How did you get people to talk to you? You're an investigative reporter. You're at The Washington Post, but you've also been on the investigative teams for Newsday, The Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. How do you get people to trust you, especially some of these grizzled old guys who don't want to talk? In this case, it was tough because, you know, cops typically don't want to air dirty laundry of themselves or others. You know, it was a a lot of sort of doggedness. Um, and it was sort of like once I earned the trust of one, then the others would, you know, he would sort of vouch for me to the other ones and they would follow suit. And so I was actually surprised at some of the people that, that would speak. Like, for example, you know, two of the so-called palace guards, the detectives who were involved in Chris Loeb's beating, sort of spoke to me at length and, and, and they had really compelling stories. And it was, and, you know, I think what probably made them want to do it is what made it so valuable to the book, which is it made them not 2D characters. And it really showed, you know, that these weren't monsters. These were cops who at times were very good at their jobs, got into the work often for idealistic reasons. And then they were just sort of corrupted from the top down by a department that was ruled by Jimmy Burke. Yeah. So I found it interesting that you right now are are an investigative reporter focusing on sports. Yeah. And as a former reporter myself, I get the difference between daily beat. Like if you're covering sports, you're covering who won, who made the playoffs, who's getting traded. What did the coach say? Just the daily stuff. And with crime, if you're a beat crime reporter, you're covering, you know, who was shoved on the subway, who got stabbed, who got arrested, where is it in court, you know, who's going to jail. But underneath, I mean, you would think that they're very different worlds, but underneath there are other stories going on that take a longer time to develop. Do you see a similarity there? I do. You know, for example, try to interview baseball players. It's a lot like try, about something that's not baseball. Yeah. Uh, about a player. It's not about their game they right, just played. About a player who's accused of a crime, right, for example. It's a lot like trying to interview a cop, right? I mean, you have to, these are closed societies, and you have to sort of earn their trust, and it takes a lot of work. And essentially what, what I'm investigating is, you know, in sports is these major institutions of power. And and to me, that's very similar to, for example, investigating the Suffolk County PD in the DA's office. So what are you working on now? Right now, I'm most... If you can say. Yeah, right now, I'm just focusing on my day job. You know, I've been doing a lot of stories on the Dodgers pitcher, Trevor Bauer, who is accused of sexual assault. Mm. And, you know, I think I do have the Suffolk County bug in me. I, you know, I think that there's no shortage of amazing stories out there. And, you know, this book really just scraped the surface. So I'm, you know, I feel like I'll always be drawn to trying to uncover things related to sort of Suffolk County and, and Gilgo and all that out there. So right now I'm, I'm on the lookout if, if there's another story that's that's kind of this jam-packed, you know. Yeah, I'm also reminded of, remember the Katie Beers story in the yeah. early 90s where they actually found her pretty quickly, this girl who was kidnapped. So there are some good, there's some good police work that goes on as well. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my guest has been Gus Garcia Roberts. His new book is called Jimmy the King, Murder, Vice, and the reign of a dirty cop. I'm going to just unabashedly say that it's a total page turner. If you're a fan of true crime, this is your book. But it's a lot more than that as well. It's a real look at Suffolk County through the prism of some real corruption. So thanks so much for being on Cut to the Chase, and I hope to see you soon. This is wonderful. Thanks so much. You got it. Bye. Bye. 